Hi, welcome to Titanium Talk. My name is Jason Neen, and today I have got one of our titans, Adam Armstrong. So Adam, first of all, tell us who you are, what you do. Are you a freelancer? Are you a company? Do you work for someone else? What are, what are you doing right now? Sure. Right now I work for a company called Amwins. It's an insurance wholesaler. So uh, we've got 3,400 employees, 100 locations across 18 countries. Uh, so I manage the mobile vision and do all the development uh, for Amwins as an organization. Um, so that's my full-time job, but I also do freelance uh, on the side, evenings, weekends. Uh, so that definitely keeps me busy as well. Cool. And are you using titanium in your full-time job? That is correct. So all, that's all I use is titanium. Um, all I do is mobile development, um, but I, I do everything for the company. So I, I'm agile. I'm doing the sprint planning, the backlog grooming. Uh, I design the UI, the mockups, the development support. I do it all, right? So I'm a, I'm a one-man team. Um, we're starting to grow uh, as it relates to mobile. So I'm, I'm getting some other individuals to help with UAT um, and some of the uh, business planning. But right now, it's it's me. Cool. And how long have you been doing that? You know, I started uh, Titanium way back in 2008 when the iPhone came out. Um, it was pretty rough back then, so I kind of left. And right, so about 2011 uh, is when I came back on full time, and, and I've been easily since 2012, 100% just day to day doing Titanium. Um, so I, I guess that's what six years now. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think I got into it. I think I started it in, tw- in 2010 because uh, I was working for an agency and. Uh, I wanted to do some. I wanted to learn. Well, I wanted to do some app development, and Objective C. I just couldn't get my head around at the time. I was just looking at it, thinking, I just you know, I'd come from like a Visual Basic background and a, a ASP Visual Basic background and a little bit of C sharp, but I was just looking at this, couldn't work it out, and so I got into it way after you. But I did, funnily enough, um, you mentioned it being rough to start with. I had to replace my iMac, and you know, I've got a little iMac in the office I use for sort of media and stuff, and it's like a backup machine. And I had to replace it recently, and I was just going through cleaning out some of the apps, and in there was Titanium Developer, which was the which for anyone who's not familiar was not even the predecessor to um, Titanium uh, Absolute Studio or Titanium Studio. It was it was like bring your own IDE, and it was effectively almost like a command line building tool. Uh, I think you could create an app with it, and it had like a a console in it, but it was pretty much how you built Titanium apps. And I think it was only iOS back then. I think Android came a little bit later. Well, and it's funny, you mentioned Objective-C. You know, I, I remember when the iPhone came out in 2008, I, I did the whole iTunes Stanford class and tried to learn Objective-C, and I went through that thing two or three times, and, and I, I started as well, kind of the classic ASP dev background, and, and I just couldn't wrap my head around Objective-C. Uh, but being very familiar with web design and then JavaScript was just natural for me, so that's, that's what really attracted me to Titanium to start with. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think for me the problem was... Being a Visual Basic developer or using the Visual Studio tools at the time, which I think was five or six, um, I, well, no, I'd got in, it was dot, I'd done .NET stuff after that, but I was just used to that whole concept of you build a form or you build a you build a layout, you pr- you double click a button and you go straight to the code for that button. There was that immediate association of you know this is the code for this button, and it was that disconnect that I didn't get. I didn't understand it, the outlets. I didn't understand the MVC approach. And it was funnily enough, I was actually driving, we were driving somewhere, we were, you know, going away for the weekend or doing something. And it was one of those moments when that happens to us developers, I'm sure you've had them as well, where you can sit in front of a screen or or sit, try and read a book, and you're just not getting something. And then when you're doing something completely unrelated, you suddenly get it. And I was literally driving along, 
and I thought, hold on a minute, I, I get it. <laughs> I, I know, I know what I'm doing now. I know you have to, you click the button, which creates the sort of outlet, and then you have to create the inlet and all those sorts of things, and 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 wire things together. And it was that association that I suddenly realised the the layout and the buttons are not directly related to the code. You have to do that linkage in between. And I remember getting home and just sort of creating a quick project and putting like a button and a field and then configuring everything and dragging the little thing you used to do across, I think you still do, to wire everything up. And it worked. And I sort of pressed the button and it changed the text field. And I was like, I got it. (laughs) But I still struggled with, uh, because I'd come from that visual element, it was like I was finding things like trying to do table views and things like that, you know, just seemed like a lot of work. And like, like with you, I mean, I was... I knew some JavaScript. I was mainly back-end stuff and HTML, but I, I was playing around with JavaScript, and I was much more comfortable working with that. And everything sort of clicked in place and just made it much easier. And I think I wrote my first app in like an afternoon. Really simple, but it was just really, really quick to do. So your your background, was it Microsoft? Were you doing .NET stuff, ASP, that sort of the SQL Server, you know, that sort of background? You know, um, out of high school, I really started on the infrastructure side. Uh, so I was doing more system administration, network admin, you know, working up to IT director. Um, and then when the iPhone came out, I kind of realized I wanted to shift from hardware to software. And uh, around 2008, 2009, that's when I started a, a huge career shift from infrastructure to software. Uh, and that took, you know, several years. And so that's where I'm at now is more on the software side than the hardware side. So I've kind of been in every aspect of IT uh, over the last, you know, 12, 15 years. Did you do any other mobile stuff? Did you do, I mean, back then we called them well, a few years ago, we called them responsive web apps, but they're progressive web apps now. So did you do any cross-platform stuff like that? Have you used any ne- other native cross-platform solutions like React Native or NativeScript or anything anything similar? You know, back when I first started looking at Titanium, um, it's been a while, but uh, I started looking at PhoneGap, uh, but that, you know, not, not having a, any kind of a .NET background either, you know, that just didn't really click for me as well. So uh, I've done some responsive web design, if you would, but when it comes to native mobile apps, um, you know, I, I just quickly looked at PhoneGap and Titanium, and really Titanium just it just made sense for me, and so I, I really just kind of stuck with it. Uh, you know, I've kind of in, inquired into React Native and whatnot, but really I I just stuck with Titanium. Do you remember WAP apps? I, I didn't do that. No. Back in 2000, there was like a markup language. Uh, it's like an HTML markup language for WAP apps, which were designed as sort of low. Uh, apps that could run i think one of the ones that ran was there was a phone that came out it was a nokia phone you know in the matrix the film the matrix came out and they had the banana phone so so they had banana phone and it was a modified version in the film where they pressed the button and it sort of shot down the slider and exposed the uh, the buttons and everything and nokia released a version of that phone it, uh, everyone thinks it was the phone in the matrix and it wasn't it was a, a different version it had a bigger screen but it had that sort of press the button and the thing slides down and I had one of those, and it was the one of the first Nokia, I think it was the first Nokia phone, if not the first mobile phone, to have this WAP capability where it could display these very simple web pages. And I think one of the first demos we did was having a website with a CMS system that generated the, the data, the, the content on the website. And the demo I used to do was adding an article. I'd, I'd write an article. I'd be writing an article on this tiny little, you know, green and black screen uh, using the buttons to do all of the, the writing, which would obviously take ages in the old days of pressing a button three times and then submitted it and it would go to an ASP backend and, and the article would appear on the website. It was quite cool. But that was supposedly the, fu- the future of mobile, which is quite funny. <laughs> I think... I think the earliest I ever got into mobile was the Palm Trio. I think it was like the 650 or something. I, I kind of dabbled in that a while back. Yeah, there was that whole era back then of uh, there was the there was a sort of the SMS devices where they, they I don't think predictive text didn't come around until 
more towards 2002 or three, I think. So it was, it was, it was the sort of, you know, tap everything three times to get letters and numbers up. And, but there were, there were the Palm Pilots. There was a, I was a Scion organizer person. So I used to have a Scion Series 5 and a Scion Revo, which I absolutely loved and used to, I could write apps for those actually on the device, which was really cool. So you could write stuff while you were on the train or whatever. But yeah, that was, that was fun. So you haven't really, you sort of looked at other cross-platform solutions, but haven't really done anything with them. Maybe just, you know, had a, had a look through some tests or something. You know, yeah. I mean, once I got in Titanium, uh, especially over the last few years with, with the uh, advancement of Hyperloop, it, it's like I can't find anything that I can't do. Um, and I think if nothing else, Hyperloop has brought me to the point where I'm now more intrigued, along with Swift. Um, I've kind of gone back to starting to dabble back into native just to learn more about Xcode and Swift. And I think Swift uh, is easier for me to wrap my head around versus Objective-C. Um, so I've kind of got an interest there that I've been digging back into doing some native apps just to learn to then be able to expand on Hyperloop in my Titanium app. So uh, not that I'm looking to move away from Titanium, but I think it's now I can leverage Hyperloop and Swift to extend Titanium even further. Um, so that's, that's kind of piqued my interest as of lately as well. That's the same for me, actually. When Swift came along, I thought like, actually, I could actually get into this. I could learn this now. And I think what's nice with Hyperloop is having the options of, you know, you can use JavaScript, you can go directly down to the underlying APIs, but you can also you know, drop Swift classes into projects and then, um, you know, write Swift code. So you could, in theory, you know, write a quick test app with some Swift or write a quick playground app with some Swift code to test some stuff out, then just dump that into as a class into the uh, Titanium project and invoke it via Hyperloop, which I want to do more of more playing around with stuff like that. And I know that I'm not sure which version it's in, if it's in 7.5 or 8, but I know that there's a concept of native modules with Swift coming that Hans was working on. He did like a prototype um, so there's so there is going to be that ability to write you know proper package native modules that have normally been done in Objective C, but with Swift, which will be really neat because I think that that'll get a lot more interest going with people you know dabbling with more native code interaction with Titanium. Yeah, and then I think it's a credit to Titanium that having started with Titanium and now going back to Xcode, uh, I can see that a lot of the naming conventions in Titanium they try to keep the same method names, uh, which helps I think that transition back to Xcode, like, oh, hey, I've seen this name. This is familiar. This is the same thing as Titanium. And I think that just helps bridge that knowledge gap as well, as I think it's a credit to them that they, they try to almost, through Titanium, help you learn a little bit of the uh, native Xcode side. So so the apps you're building, are they alloy-based, or are they your own framework, or how, how, do they, how does that work? Sure, yeah. You know, back in... 2010, 11, it was all classic, right? Um, once Alloy came out, then it was kind of wrapping my head around that MDC. And, and like you, I mean, it took me a little while and kind of resistance maybe. But once I really understood the MDC, man, I, I've since 2012, 2013, whenever it came out, I've been 100% on it. And I, I don't do anything other than Alloy. If I pick up any side projects, the first thing I'm going to do before I even try to do any enhancement is if it's not Alloy, I'm going to convert it to Alloy because I refuse to work with classic anymore. It's that and then the data binding, especially using your RESTI tool. I mean, I use it in everything. Uh, I mean, those are those are my crutches: Alloy and, and RESTI in every single app. The thing with RESTI was, I I used Alloy for years and I didn't use the data binding, which is insane. Going thinking back to it, I was you know I was completely crazy. I loved I loved the XML layouts. I loved the, the, the TSS. I loved the the you know I could write what I considered at the time very little JavaScript code. But I was doing all the data binding manually. You know, I was I was doing that whole thing of creating an array and then you know adding table views and and adding them to the, setting them to the table view, adding table view rows and setting them to table view. And I can't remember the reason why, but I think I was I was looking at the 
because obviously uh, to, uh, alloy uses backbone, but the, the the way of defining the models is is a specific thing to alloy. You know, there's a the models folder and the way they're configured is a specific thing with titanium and alloy. That's their implementation, and so you can consider Resty to be a different implementation of a similar thing. And and what bothered me when I wanted to play around and start doing stuff with data, I was sort of overwhelmed a bit by the implementation in alloy, you know, the models folder and having to create a model for each one and the concept of migrations and all these things, probably because I was looking at it as a, as a complete thing. I was looking, you know, migrations are only really re- relevant when you're dealing with databases and I wasn't dealing with databases. I wasn't going to use any SQL databases. It was mainly APIs, you know, remote rest APIs, but I was quite overwhelmed by the whole thing and wondering how the hell everything worked. And resty really came about because I wanted to just make my job easier. So the, the initial version didn't use you know you can still use it like this it didn't use the the backbone stuff it was just it was a way of self-writing a sort of api because i would always have this standard api.js file and then i'd have to custom write my methods for each project and i just wanted to be able to have one js file i could drop into a project and a config that would then do it so that was where it came about and it was only when i was think i was talking to someone about oh is it going to support you know models and collections and i thought oh yeah that's that might be quite difficult when i actually played with it i think i wrote the first test version that implemented the backbone sync in an afternoon on a Sunday. I think we were cooking lunch and I sort of had the laptop in the kitchen and was just playing around. And when it actually worked, it was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And that's when I realized data binding was the way to go because the amount, you know, I was stripping out 50, 60 lines of code from a controller and it was like one fetch command. Now I know that you sort of have to have the library and, and you do the config. That's, you know, a one-off thing, but still it was, yeah, it was pretty groundbreaking. And that's, um, I'm exactly like you. I do that all the time now. Well, and then now in some of my apps, especially because most of these are internal employee-only apps, uh, I, I can add a, a simple line in, in a settings, and I can, by using your override method of a URL, I can flip between a dev, test, and a prod environment by just flipping out a URL. It's 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 freaking awesome, and, and I, I use it as a crutch for everything, so I love it. The one thing I did... I did do because I wrote another library called Mox, uh, which was just doing mock data. And I in- then sort of integrated some stuff back from that into Resty. Because what's nice at the moment is I've, I'm literally actually writing an app in about trying to write an app for my wife for 24 hours, um, which is to do with some event tomorrow. And they want to use barcode scanning to barcode the products um, so they can you know work out what people have bought. So I've sort of got 24 hours to write an app. And I literally started it last night. I did the sort of back end setup. But rather than integrate the back end straight away, I'm using that um, create model and create collection command that I've got to just create it from a, an array of objects, you know, just literally mock data. So I can I can map out the whole UE. I can simulate and add product. I can add the product to the collection. It all looks like it works. If you restart the app, you know, nothing's saved. But it just means I can mock up the whole thing without worrying about wiring anything up yet. Do all the validation, do all that sort of stuff. And then this evening I'll be wiring it up to the back end and then that'll be that. I've done the same thing uh, now that I'm leveraging some internal resources for API services. I do the same thing. I can create mock-up data on the fly. I can get through my UI um, while I'm waiting on, you know, typical corporate services to get stuff done. Uh, and once I set through it and we all agree this is how it's done, I can now just hand them, hey, here's what I need the JSON output to look like. And then they can go make their API match it. It, 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 it has allowed me to move forward on my development without being hung up waiting on, you know, waterfall processes to get things in place. So it, it's really helped. It's helped me as a single person doing everything to really, you know, keep me moving to streamline and fast. Have you, um, have you looked at any of these previews for the Vue.js or Angular.js with Titanium? Well, I've looked at the Angular. You know, that's that's new for me. I've not done Angular. I'm interested in 
learning that, but I think I probably need to learn some Angular before I try to use Angular in Titanium, I would imagine. Um, but I, I have not touched on Angular or Vue. How about you? I've not used either before. Um, I've seen examples. Yeah, like you, I think it's a bit like it's a bit like how I felt about when I was just playing around with React Native. It was it felt like you're sort of trying to jump. You know, you're trying to jump over something. For, it's a bit like jumping straight into Alloy. I think that's good. You know, I think you can start with Titanium and go straight into Alloy. But I think if you if you do some basic stuff with Titanium Classic first and just understand like the concepts of Windows and buttons and how everything works, I think that gives you like a good grounding on you know how the basics of the structure of Titanium um, UE components and all those things work. And then I think you appreciate Alloy more when you come to because you know you do your own manual data binding and all that sort of stuff then suddenly you appreciate alloy way more because you can see how it's helping you and you can see how everything's working and, and you know what it's doing behind the scenes and how it's binding the data and i feel like with these other solutions i think like you i think what i need to do is learn a bit of angular learn a bit of view.js first you know just knock up a really simple web app or to, the, the classic to do app or something in those tools as web apps understand the syntax the logic how everything works and then I think once I've looked at the example projects that are, uh, you know, Angular and, and Vue.js, then everything's going to make sense and I'm going to appreciate it more. A bit like with React, because I think if you just jump in, if you just a developer that jumps into React Native, there's a whole other language there, you know, that's been around for years for the web that you're sort of skipping over and jumping straight into the native side of it. So I think... That's probably what I'll end up doing, but I'm, I'm definitely interested in doing it because I like that. I like the idea of being able to deliver a web app and then reuse code and reuse components. Maybe we can't get to a cross-platform solution where we've, we've got you know the web and the native apps completely in one code base, but I think we could get it where there's a good share of code because you could have you know there's going to be components and includes that could be shared across, which would be really really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think that to me that's the intriguing part of the Angular is. You know, like you said, to be able to extend that, and sure, maybe you don't end up with an eighty or ninety percent code reuse, but even if it's fifty percent, that gets you a long ways down the road to having your web app as well. Yeah, and I know that we've got that. There is that web aspect in the Titanium at the moment, but I think it has been and will be deprecated at some point. Um, so it's it's having that solution that we've got that we can we can we're not we're not having to quote a client to do iOS and Android, and then they say can I have a web app? And you're like having to quote them the same amount of money again. It would be nicer to have a reduction there and it'd be cool to be playing around with that stuff and just seeing what sort of, what sort of share we can get in terms of the percentage. But talking about backend stuff, do your apps use uh, the accelerator platform or something else? Yeah. So we're, when I came on board and did this full time, uh, we signed up back in 2014 as an enterprise customer. So I'm all in on, on that from a support standpoint. And I also utilize, you know, well, was AeroDB? I forget what they call it now. Uh, Aero Cloud Services, but um, yeah, no, I use it quite a bit. I have one app that we use internally for iPads only, and our, our reps drive around and visit agents. Um, and I use some of the geofencing uh, modules as well. And uh, as they as they drive up to an agent, it shows up on the screen, kind of using a, a, a check in and a check out fence. Um, and then as they visit an agent, then you know, used to the reps had to spend all day Friday kind of updating their notes for the manager. What did I do this week? What do I plan to do next week? Um, and so by using the iPads now, uh, it automatically tracks when they show up to an agent, shows when they leave an agent. Um, and it's kind of like a Facebook check-in, check-out status. And now we've given them back the entire Friday to make more visits. So they immediately became 20% more efficient because they don't have to do this follow-up call log. Um, and it's using technology, right? So instead of trying to remember 
who is this agent? How do I find them in our system? It just pops on, pops on the screen. Hey, are you at ABC Insurance? Yes, I am. Boom, you're in, and there you go, right? So, um, yeah, I use Arrow for everything, um, posts, check-ins. I'm doing chats, um, events. Where I'm using events kind of cleverly for, like, surveys, so I can say an event lasts from here to here, um, and then that way is they pop up to visit an agent, a manager, a manager may want them to ask certain questions as a survey, and so she adds it as an event in our Aero Cloud, and it shows up on their iPad. So kind of cool stuff. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, that, yeah, this is what I like about the sort of backend services that AppSea provide with the with Arrow and everything is that you've got these sort of built in this built in stuff that you would normally have to build yourself. I mean, the whole concept of I remember years ago having to build an app for YouGov. It was a survey app, really simple app that just asked questions, but they only used Microsoft backend technologies and the only way to do the backend was to write an API. So I had to write this effectively a JSON API, which is, was a terrible thing to write in .NET four or five years ago. It was just a really nasty thing to write. Uh, they're, they're much better now because they've got like dynamic objects that work more like JavaScript objects. But, but I had to use a SQL server, had to write this whole API layer. It was just, it was horrific. And what I love about you know, the AppC backend and other backends like that is you can put stuff together. You know, I don't have to think about it. When I'm quoting a client for a project, I'm not having to quote them to write an API because it's it's pushing a couple of buttons or configuring a couple of things. And I've suddenly got, you know, a backend that I can start saving data to. I don't use, I don't like using anything, anything that's uh, MySQL based or SQL server based, anything relational. I, li- I like the NoSQL approach. It just, for me, it just makes things a lot easier, a lot less stressful. Like doing this app now, I'd have to create a database. I'd have to create tables. I'd have to do all the relationships. I'd have to then write the API to interface with that. And I know there are, there are probably tools out there that help make that easier, but I just find this sort of stuff, it's just much easier to set up and get going. Oh, especially with just a simple include of a, the TI cloud module and then a few lines and you're creating posts. It's it's just so stupid simple to, to implement some of that stuff. And then I, I took it in the next step and use the API builder. Uh, we had a couple of desperate... MySQL servers that work. And so I was able to pull those together and use Composite.js to aggregate data across multiple data centers. Yeah, that's and pull together. Cool. yeah very slick stuff. And the, the other nice thing I like, because there are other backend providers that people use, but one of the, the nice things about AppSea platform is that production development um, switch. So, you know, you can just literally, you know, reconfigure something and suddenly you're in development mode and you're playing around in staging and then the next minute you're in production. And that's, yeah, that's really nice. I know we did, I'm working on some stuff at the moment for the to-do app demo that we did a couple of years ago. I've updated it and we're going to be doing some some YouTube videos. I'm going to be doing some YouTube video demos, recording a few this week on that app and going through how to add features to it. So we can just do some sort of quick one minute, two minute video clips to, to help people out with tutorials. Uh, and that app was really easy to wire up and get it connected to the back end. I know it's a simple app, but it was just so simple. I mean, the the guy that did, the guy from Accelerator that did that integration for the demos that we did, because we did a sort of three-part demo. I did the intro. Someone else did a Siri kit with Hyperloop and someone else did the back end wiring. I think he did it in like, you know, the, the, the presentation's like 20 minutes where he goes through how to do it. And it was just so, so nice. Yeah, the, the dev and prod environment is, is so simple that sometimes... Uh... I find myself stepping on myself because I can't remember, did I push this to my device and so I'm on a dev version or did I push this through the MDM server and now I'm on a prod version? So I con- I constantly find uh, discrepancies in data it's because I realized, oh, I'm on the dev version, not the prod version. So, yeah. Classic, uh, yeah, classic situation where you're trying to test something and you're thinking, ah, I, did, I didn't flick that switch, damn. <laughs> um, <laughs> so on to talking about the way that you develop. Are you a, 
are you a CLI guy or are you a studio guy? And if you're CLI, what What's your IDE of choice? You know, I, I'm I'm all in on uh, App Studio, so I've been using Studio for everything. Uh, you know, I've, I am interested in using Atom, especially with some of these packages I've, I've seen the community releasing. I I think I want to make that change, but uh, for the last four years now, I've been all in on App Studio. Um, I, I tried to use the App Builder inside Studio, but I use a lot of percentages for dynamic sizing, and so the I see uh, in my experience when you start going to percentages, then the App Builder isn't quite doesn't quite work after the fact, but uh, but it does help you for quickly maybe getting started on some UI. But uh, I guess to answer your question, I, I go all in on Studio. How about you? No, I used to use it. Um, I used to use it when it was Titanium Studio, and I've used it when it was Accelerator Studio, and I had to use it for a, f- a couple of projects that relating to some clients. Um, so yeah, the debugging I used to like. So I used to love being able to step through stuff and. You know, you could customize it. You can customize it. You can do your own fonts and styles and themes, and it's 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 good for that sort of thing. But I think it was when I was playing around with some CLI tools, and I know, you know some stuff that Fokker had written, and that I've now got some of those repos like Tiny and some commands and, and tools like that, that I started playing with the CLI more. And I've always been so I sort of I'm, I'm going to be 48 next year, so I'm a, I'm a grumpy old grumpy old man now. But I I grew up, you know, I grew up with the so in the early 80s coding, when everything was command line, everything was terminal, and once you know pointers and windows and Macs and things came along, I got into all that and thought, I just don't want to use terminal. And I went through this whole phase as a developer. I just hated the terminal. I don't want to deal with it. You know, I just want to point and click and do stuff. And it's funny how like the last few years, I've got back more into using the terminal again and getting more comfortable using the terminal. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm CLI all the way, and uh, I was... Uh, fully on board with Atom as my choice. Had some, had all those nice extensions that you talk about. There's some great ones that, you know, you could open a controller and it would open up all the other views for the the TSS and the XML, which was really nice. Um, uh, you had uh, predictive, you know, inputs and autocorrect or autocomplete and all that sort of stuff. Really good. Uh, but the only problem with Atom was, and is, that it can sometimes really slow down. And considering, I think Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code is based on similar technology. But they've got a much faster implementation. And every now and again, I'd have to shut Atom down, restart it again to try and get everything back running again. And there was more and more Titanium developers using Visual Studio code. And it was coming up with way more updates. So I switched over to that recently. And it was one of those things where you switch environments. You you start getting fonts and things configured to be the same. But I've got it pretty sweet now. I've got it pretty much how I want it. I've... Uh, we've got a um, accelerator. We've got a Visual Studio Code extension, which is coming out soon. Uh, that's being worked on, and I've got a, a version of that installed, which means I get autocomplete, so I can start typing ti dot, and it comes up with all the different, you know, ue dot and all the suggestions. It will it will allow you to do dynamic clicks, so you can click on something as a class, and it will take you to the TSS. It's really really nicely done, and it lets you build to different platforms and different simulators within Visual Studio Code by picking some drop-down options and things. So um, it's not really a secret that's been worked on. It has been worked on. It's it's currently private because it's being tested and played with, uh, but it, it's going to be really cool. So, yeah, I'm, I'm playing around with that at the moment, which is quite nice. I think the Studio feature I use every day, probably the most, is the, the team integration. So from with your Git repository, you can stage, commit, push, pull, and I really like that it's just built right in the Studio as well. So I can just stay in one tool and do everything I need to do. Yeah, that is that is cool. What the one thing I missed about Studio was the the ability to just quickly build, you know, to different simulators really easily just by point and clicking instead of like currently, I, especially because I've got two versions of Xcode installed and I'm 
switching between and I'm having to remember the right CLI command to do and the right SDK that I'm working with for a project and things like that. So that can be a bit of a, a pain sometimes, which Studio was always nice handling. Yeah, and I never really touched the CLI until this last year when I started looking to do some more of the continuous development or integration and I got into Fastlane uh, and then realized I needed somehow to hook into that. And I didn't like that the TI Fastlane was out there. It was just, it was very limited. And so then I wrote my own little Ruby package to uh, be able to tie and build uh, titanium apps from within Fastlane. Um, and so then I had to start digging into CLI, and I was quite impressed with how thorough it was as well. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, I've started playing with hooks at the moment. So um, I've got a situation where I, well, I was playing around with some hooks to do version increments in the TIX, TI app XML, uh, and also adding, ha- having an ability, there's, there's a certain app that I work with where I have to use two different SDKs for iOS and Android for some reason. And you can't, there's no uh, platform-specific uh, attribute filtering, if you like, in the TI app XML like there is in uh, the normal Alloy files. So you can't, for instance, say, you know, the SDK version. You can't say SDK, then platform equals iOS, and it's this, and then platform equals Android. It will just use the last one that's shown. But what you can do is you can write a hook, and you can do things like switch TI app XML entries around before it's built because your pre-build hook can kick in. And it will let you change that stuff on the fly. It doesn't actually change it in the file, but it's just changing it from what's been loaded in. So you could do some clever things, which just means you can you could have something, for example, where um, I know situations with app developers where they might develop an app that's a dev app. So they don't want it to have the same ID as the production app. Um, so that when they install it, they can still have the production app installed. So it's easier for testing, isn't it? You can test if the production version does the same thing. So they want the ID changed. Uh, the problem with that is obviously just maintaining that because you've got to change the ID. And if you're using Git, that means that could potentially be an accidental commit. So do you do it in a branch? And it just gets a bit complicated. So so one technique you can use is a hook. And then when you do the CLI command, you can sort of say dash dash uh, mode equals, or I think I wrote one that just let you change the um, the GUID at the time, but you can do it with the ID. So you could do dash dash uh, app ID and then specify the new app ID and it will change it on the fly. So that nothing is written to disk so nothing shows up in git as a change which is quite nice but it basically would enable you to build the dev version or the production version from the cli which is quite nice oh nice so hook hooks are quite cool so when you when you're developing when you're um when you get problems you know you get you need help what's your go-to place that you you get for help is it slack is it stack overflow do you do google where do you what do you do you know i'm i'm in slack every single day uh so i i constantly watch what people are Asking, seeing, facing similar issues. So typically, if I if I know someone's asked a similar question, I'll go to Slack first. Uh, if it's something kind of new, I might you know just go out and typical Google search. I mean, I think I, I do more duck duck go these days. Um, but I, I would say probably typical Google, which at that point tends to lead to Stack Overflow. Uh, but I, I typically start with Slack, as my Slack seems to be. I mean, the communities, especially the last year or so, has really grown a lot, and uh, it's pretty exciting to see people engaged every day out there. So I start with Slack and then kind of move to Google in that order. Yeah, TI, TI Slack's quite nice. I think the website's tislack.org um, and you can join up there if you're not already a member. You get lots of help straight away from Titanium developers um, and they've got channels in there for different groups, whether you're doing Hyperloop or module development. There's a jobs channel, there's off topic, there's all kinds of things. But yeah, that's that's my main place that I'll go to if I, if I need a, if I've come across a problem, I'll do a quick search in Slack. Then I'll go to Google. Stack Overflow, I don't mind. It's 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 nice for picking up some. Uh, it's nice for picking up everything, but most of the time, because this JavaScript base and I'm using Alloy and Backbone, it's you know nice to pick up um, clues around things uh, in, in Backbone help and, and stuff like that. But 
the, the only thing that bothers me about Stack Overflow is the point system. Because sometimes I, I, when I started playing with it probably a couple of years ago, when I started helping Accelerator and I was trying to answer some questions on Stack Overflow, I actually couldn't answer certain questions because I didn't have enough points, which was just insane. So I had to go through that. You have to sort of go through this thing of like earning the right to answer people. So you have to sort of answer some stuff that you can. Then people would rate you or, or say yes or no or accept the answer. And suddenly you'd, you'd get a bonus point. It was like playing a game, like in-app purchases or something. And then all of a sudden, I'd, I'd earn the permission to then be able to do more things. I think, I think at the time I couldn't comment so I could answer, but I couldn't comment on someone else's answer, which just seemed really crazy. Uh, and then finally, I earned that right. But it, it, that's the only thing that bothered me about it. But you know, you do get people asking there. There's, there's actually a channel in TI Slack where questions go into. Um, I think it's called Help Them, uh, and the Stack Overflow entries come there, so you can link off to it. But um, yeah, Slack definitely is great. So in terms of Working with Titanium, obviously, I mean, I consider myself to be still l learning it. You know, I, I, I know bits of it better than I know other bits of it. And I'm, I'm definitely still learning day to day with stuff that I'm doing. What, what have you learned? What are the sort of main, and I guess this is a two-part question. So what lessons have you learned? What are the overriding lessons that you've learned? And that could be anything from specifics to do with Titanium or stuff to do with cross-platform mobile. And then also as part of that, what advice would you give to someone who, let's say, has come to you and said, I want to start doing mobile development. You've convinced them to use Titanium. What are the main things that you would advise them starting out with Titanium? You know, it's interesting because when, when I first got into Titanium, you know, uh, of course, that's when iPhone came out and the whole skeuomorphism. I think everybody dove in deep trying to customize and, and make everything different and against Apple standards. Uh, but I think over the last three or four years, as we've seen the Touch ID and now Face ID and the, the button's gone and now we have edge-to-edge -edge screens, if you will, quote-unquote. Um, I, I think more and more it, I've definitely bought into just going all native UI, native APIs, and, and really if somebody wants to go against that and have a custom tab group button, I, I have to have a really good compelling reason of why because I think more of the support um, implications of that than the actual design implications. And so, I, and I think what we've seen is if you stick with the native UI, touch ID or face ID, then as that changes – you have very little, if no, adjustments you have to make, and it, and it makes your app more stable. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing for me is stick with native UI and don't try to get too fancy with it. Uh, that's probably the advice you'd give someone else, which is, yeah, I mean, that's exactly, I'm exactly in the same position as you. Uh, you know, when you start with Titanium, especially in the early days without Alloy, it was very easy to get into doing custom layer. There was, there was a style guide, if you like, because you obviously had the iOS, you know, user interface standards, but there were lots of apps doing crazy stuff out there. And what I found more recently, and I fell into that trap of doing some of those custom things, but what I found more recently was that, there, you know, there were, there were clients coming to me with apps where they were basically ready to dump Titanium and go native because they were saying, you know, we, this app is just so slow. It's, you know, terrible on Android. It's not too bad on iOS, but it's just so slow on Android. And when you actually built the app and had a look at it, everything was custom, you know? Um, there's a there's an update coming out. I think it's 7.5. Uh, yeah, I think it's 7.5 is coming with the tab group at the bottom in Android. So you can have the, the native tab group, but it's going to be the option to have the tabs at the bottom, which is going to be really, really cool. Because that's one of the biggest... I mean, I wrote a widget or I, I wrote a component for that and it was cust is a complete custom component. It works as best as it can, but it's still not as, be as good as native. And that was the... In this particular app, I ended up just saying to the client, just give me 24 hours to play around with some stuff. And I, you know, ripped out the custom because they were, they had a custom tab group. When you clicked on stuff, it wasn't slide. They'd done their own slide in. 
they'd done their own animated slide in. So everything was just terrible. You know, they were trying to copy iOS on Android, which was just horrific. So I, I just stripped it all out, put a native tab group in, had it working on Android. So the tabs were at the top by default. Uh, when you clicked on a news item, it was a news app. When you clicked on a news item, it just opened it as a new window. It didn't try and simulate a tab group sliding it in. And the performance was just amazing. It was, it was, it was like native. It was incredibly fast. They were completely stunned. And then that led to like a year contract working on those apps. Now, now that component, that component you're talking about when you had Android, added Android tabs at the bottom, didn't that also though require the removal of the action bar so you couldn't have both? Yeah, basically you would, it would create a custom, it would create a custom title bar and tabs. So it would, it was literally simulating the iOS tab group. Uh, and you could, and it was done as a redefined alloy tag. So the concept was, is that you could take an existing tab, take an existing app, you could drop my module in, you could uh, add the module as an attribute to the existing tab group that you've got, you know, the existing iOS tab group or Android tab group that you've dropped into your XML. And it would only, on iOS, it would still work as a native tab group, as the normal tab group. But on Android, it would turn it into a simulated tab group. Uh, and it, work, it works really well. I mean, there's people that use it um, still. Nice. Uh, and it does work. And I even try to simulate things like on Android, I try to simulate, you know, when you click a tab group, you get that little expanding color thing. Uh, and I, and I, I did uh, disappearing tabs. So as you scroll up and down, the tabs can disappear. Little options like that. But I am literally coding it all manually. You know, I am trying to simulate a native experience that existed a native control in Android and I'm trying to do it by sliding things down and moving things, which is, you know, fine if you've got a fast enough device. You really don't notice it on like a pixel and stuff. It's very, very slick, uh, but it's not as good as native. So that's coming in 7.5, which is going to be really, really nice. Awesome. So it's, yeah, it's going to make some. But that's exactly the advice I would give. That's that's the overriding thing that I've learned is to keep things. And it's the biggest thing I tell clients. You know, when you get designed through and they're saying, I remember having a discussion with a client once who absolutely insisted that Apple had it wrong and that when you click on something, the, the, the window should slide in from the left because that's the natural thing that it should do, which was just bizarre. Um, and, that's, and they wanted that in their app and I managed to win the fight to say, no, you're not having that because that's not how every other app works. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's definitely, I mean, apps can still look slick. You know, they can still look nice. They can still have nice designs. But I think trying to stick to native as much as possible is going to get a much better user experience. Yeah, and I, and I think the next thing I, I try to look to is staying as recent as possible on the the TI SDKs. Um, I mean, I, I would like to say I'm always on the newest uh, GA, but I'm, I'm definitely no further back than N minus one. So I mean, like right now I'm on seven four one. That's nice. Yeah, and when when seven five comes out, I mean, I'll definitely wait for the GA. <clears throat> and to be honest, I'll probably give myself a couple weeks just kind of see how it goes before I move a production app, but um, I, I found myself taking my older laptop and moving it to a, a dev laptop so where I can load the newest beta builds. I can pull my code down, test against some of these RC and GA builds. Um, but then if a client comes back and says they need a quick change, I've got a production state laptop with you know this, the same SDKs as I released it to make quick changes. So I'm a little fortunate there. But uh, definitely, I don't stay a whole version behind. I, I try to stay within one of a minor release uh, as, as much as possible. And I, I think because it... If you don't, you're just you're delaying the inevitable because it, it's you're going to have to move at some point. So the sooner you move, the better. And I think the longer you wait, then the more problems you can face in trying to upgrade a whole version at a time. 
Yeah, I think there's there's definitely been situations where you know there's point releases where it's I mean you know I've got an app that I'm doing at the moment or a couple of few apps that I'm doing at the moment and they I think they're they're still on seven point four but I could just do a quick update they're on seven point four one and they're going to be fine because there's no nothing significant but obviously there's been big changes with in the past with thirty two bit sixty four bit or you know changes to the JS. Uh, compile and and v8 and all that sort of stuff that's affected modules have to be rebuilt and all that sort of thing and i think as a developer you're making your life much easier if you can try and keep it and it's difficult because if you're in your position um, these are your apps these are your company's apps you work for that company you know you are the client as well as the developer doing it effectively so you're in much more control as to how you do that i guess for freelancers the stuff i do where you're dealing with a client you might have developed develop them an app and then you know you've let them they're like a child you've let them leave the house and go on and you know be fruitful or whatever have having that process of you know going back to them and and trying to see whether you know do they need it updated and i guess it it's a good opportunity though to create a sort of aftercare some sort of maintenance or aftercare support for these clients and for these apps for your business so that as a freelancer you can say well, and I, I sent a, a quote off for someone today in which I've put in a maintenance package and I've said, you know, you can you can use my warranty and pay me by the hour after that or whatever. Uh, and we can do stuff ad hoc. But if you if you pay this certain amount per year as a maintenance fee, I'll do unlimited support in terms of bug fixes. So, you know, I'll deal with SDK updates. I'll make sure it's up to date with the latest SDK. I'll make sure any bugs are fixed. I'll do all that stuff as part of that maintenance package. Yeah, I do. I do that as well. <clears throat> Freelance is kind of like a monthly retainer fee, right? And yeah, like you said, yeah. support. And I think that's the, I think that's the key there. As things change, with twelve point one came out, well, what, did that break anything? I don't know, but you've got it covered in your maintenance plan. So, yeah, exactly. When I've just, I've literally just before this call installed twelve point one X code, which finally a uh, ten point one X code, which finally appeared. So I haven't actually done a test build yet with that, but I'll try it in a minute. Um, but yeah, the other thing is uh, what you're saying about using native controls is interesting in terms of upgrades. So. Uh, what was it? What was it? it was when the X, uh, the iPhone 10 nearly said X. The iPhone 10 last year came out, and obviously home button went. We got the home indicator, and for app for certain apps that I'd built where I was using uh, the storyboard, I, I was using you know I wasn't using a launch screen. I was using the storyboard um, configuration. I, it was just by default. It was an accident. I didn't intend to, but I just started using it, and that was what I did. When I fired that app up, it you know and rebuilt it and everything. It just worked on the iPhone 10. It just scaled up and. You know, rebuilt it with a new SDK and it was done. I didn't have to change anything because it was using a storyboard. It resized automatically. Whereas the apps that I'd used fixed launch images, fixed splash screens, I had to do a new splash screen to get it to trigger, you know, to get it to change. Um, and what's interesting about that is when, and I haven't even tested this, or it's not really an issue on iOS, but that tab group I wrote defaults to the normal tab group on iOS anyway. But if you overwrote, if you overrode it to get the custom tab group, I don't know how that would behave with the iPhone 10. It might not play very nicely. And like, like you say, if you use those native controls, if you're using native, um, the native tab group and all the native controls, then when the iPhone 10 comes along and it's pushing that interface up a little bit, your stuff's going to be fine. But if you're doing stuff that's custom, it's all going to go wrong. And, and you know, there were apps like, uh, there obviously weren't Titanium apps, but, you know, Inbox, well, there may have been, uh, Inbox by Google and other apps like that, that, you know, they didn't get iPhone 10 support for like six months. And you think, well... If you're using a storyboard, it's really easy. It's just rebuild with the new SDK. If you're using a launch screen process, well, that's just creating a new launch screen and then it rebuild it and then it should be fine. So for them not to be updating their apps for like six months because means that something's weird's going on. You know, there's some weird 
custom UI they're doing that isn't using the standard UI elements of iOS, and that's why they're having to mess around with it to try and get it to work again. And that's that's painful. Yeah, it's crazy to see some of these large companies like Microsoft taking almost an entire year to to update. It's yeah, like you said, that that tells you something under the covers is going on. So, the last question is an interesting one because there could be a few things on this wish list. But what would be what would be your killer feature if you had all the power? Um, you could just make a decision to say this was the killer feature you wanted to add to Titanium or the Accelerator platform. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think I touched on it earlier. Um, yeah, I use an iPad and do some mock-up prototyping as I as I start a new app or a new screen or a new feature. And in my experience, uh, I, I tend to spend most of my time on designing the UI, right? Um, and so I tried to use the app builder, uh, but maybe maybe it's the way I'm coding today. I use a lot of percentages to scale certain UI elements, whether it's images or or backgrounds or views, whatever it might be. Um, I, I I think there could be a huge advantage if we could be able to extend App Builder to use it almost like you do Xcode, where I'd be able to drop in elements, constraints, whether it's you know you're pinning it to the left or to the top. I know there's some of that in there, but it seems like when you start to add percentages for scaling, then it seems to I don't know if you checked it out. It tends to kind of skew it. So if you take a UI you've already built and try to open that in App Designer and you're doing percentages, it it doesn't really render on the screen. And in my experience, um, I think. I spend most of my time on UI and any more tools to help me around creating new UI elements uh, or, or views or screens, I think, would, would save a lot of time. Yeah, that's that would be very cool. Um, it's interesting with the prototyping, like you say, with the iPad. I guess, you know, if I could, I mean, I'd love to be able to write this myself, but it's just finding the time and, and the ability to do this sort of stuff because it involves a bit more, you're sort of having to write your own ID effectively. But I, I love the, I would love personally the idea of having an app that you could run on an iPad in which you could you could prototype Titanium at. So you could actually, you know, have an IDE open and be coding Alloy or Classic Titanium uh, and almost like a split view. You know, on the left-hand side, you'd have your IDE and on the right-hand side, you'd have an iPhone, what looks like an iPhone simulator running. And it would essentially be Titanium, you know, running within that view. So it, would, it wouldn't be the normal split view of the eye of the OS, if you see what I mean. It would be simulated within the app and it wouldn't be a simulator. It would be, you know, part of the titanium app that you're writing code in but it would effectively be dynamically pushing that code into that window on the side so that you could almost like REPL you know you could be coding stuff you could change values you can and, and almost like live view you know as you're coding it's just literally changing it on the right I think that would be amazing to be able to like this app that I'm playing with at the moment where I could have you know an iPad on my lap or an iPad and use a touch screen or whatever and just build some mock-up apps and then when I'm finished I can either commit it via Git or whatever or hit a button, put it in iCloud, whatever, and just download it to my desktop and continue playing with it or whatever. That, that would be really neat. Yeah, because I, I don't know how you do it. So I use the iPad, and I've got this app, this app called App Cooker, and you can drop in a status bar, drop in a view, and label on a tab group and table view. And it's, it's stupid simple, and it looks great, and you, it's interactive and all that. But then when I, I take a mock-up and we all agree, yeah, that's great, let's do it. Then I find myself almost getting paper drawing it out and starting to then almost create like a graph paper. Okay, how am I going to do – this will be a horizontal view. This will be a vertical view. This will be a vertical inside of a horizontal. And I find myself sketching and doing a lot of how am I going to split this up, almost like HTML, right? How am I going to break this up into a table to then write the XML for it? And I, I, I feel like – and I haven't really put the number on but I feel like half my time is spent on a new app on just designing the UI. And once I get all the elements kind of 
drawn out in XML, then it's like, okay, great. Now it's simple. It's background, it's colors, it's fonts, whatever else. And, and I just felt like that would be a, a, a huge win from a, a time perspective when you think of mobile development and all the time spent. So. Yeah, I, I, I've just, every single time I do an app, I'm, always, I'm one of these people, I'm a terrible developer like this. I'm one of these people that do, does a new app and thinks I'm going to try and do it a different way. You know, I'm going to try and make things more reusable, trying to componentize things. And I'll end up halfway through the project or during the project, I'll suddenly start renaming folders and restructuring things and refactoring that really shouldn't be necessary. But I just want to get a cleaner, you know, cleaner layout and have less duplicate code and stuff like that. Uh, but what I have started doing recently, and it's it's worked really well on this app that I'm having to build really quickly, is starting to build little libraries that I can drop into new projects. So you know, Resty is my sort of my own go-to library for API stuff. So that that's what I'll always use to do that. I've got another library I use called uh, that I wrote called Alloy Excel, which overrides the Create Controller and sort of adds some more, more events. It just makes it a bit easier to chain things together, so you can have a login screen and have it open a home screen and close the login screen and you haven't created any pointers and it's all just like almost like one chained um, command which is quite nice quite handy um, but one of, one of the things I've been playing with and I haven't released it yet because I'm just going through that imposter syndrome process of you know reviewing the code and making sure I don't get uh, judged <laughs> that people go through when they, do, when they do open source stuff uh, but it's just a little library called crux.ue um, the crux thing came from I think it was cross-platform user experience that was the concept, you know, the crazy process of naming these things. But that, that was one where I had to build an app. Uh, it was a form-based app. So there were lots of forms. There was, there was text fields. There was pickers. Um, the pickers would need to appear on an iPhone at the bottom of the screen as normal and on an iPad pop up like a normal interface. There were expanding views. So, you know, if you ticked a checkbox or ticked a, a toggle on, it would expand another view underneath with more options. There was just lots of requirements like that. And I was getting to the point where I was writing this stuff out. I'm writing too much code. You know, I'm repeating too much code in these controllers. So I started trying to standardize it into a library. And so what I ended up doing was writing this, this JS library. It's a common JS library that you, it does alloy override of tags. And so basically, once you've dropped it into your project, you create a, a text field as normal. Uh, you can add the uh, module name either to the alloy tag or to the individual text field. And it, it gives you additional things on that text field. So you have a caption. You have an error message that can appear underneath if it's empty or if it's not validated. And it will clear the error message if you then start typing or you do validate. Um, you can specify all the fonts of these things. You can add a left icon, a right icon. You can add an icon next to the caption. You can have, um, I'm working on something where it will be one of those ones where the caption slides up, you know, out, it's sort of in the middle of the wow. field, but as you start typing, just little things like that that are sort of common with user interface libraries. With the picker, I used to get really fed up having to write multiple picker code. So I've got one picker, and if it's on an iPad, it does a pop-up, and if it's on an iPhone, it does the thing at the bottom of the screen. Um, and I'm just, I need to adapt that for Android. Um, you can also just give it um, for testing. You can in the in the XML you can say I can't remember what the what the attribute is. I, th I think it's uh, list data or picker picker data or picker items. So you can say picker items and just give it an array. Just say you know one comma two comma three comma four just to test your interface. <coughs> or if it's something really simple like a really simple picker, so that makes it a bit easier. And that's that's something I've suddenly realised I should have been doing from day one. You know I should be writing more of this stuff. So that when I can, when I'm prototyping an app, when I'm just do, sort of doing the user interface like you are, I can just drop in this stuff. So let's say I've got a, a table view. So it'll be really, be, it would be really, really nice to almost have like a prototyping tag that I can say, I want to drop a table view in 
what type of table view is it going to be? It's going to be template one or template two, or it's going to be a contact list. And what would be cool is if it rendered out some demo content. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. as, as, as you open the screen, you suddenly get a contact list with the A, a and Z and it scrolls and it's, it's there and you can suddenly see that interface working. That, that sort of stuff would be really cool because it would be nice to do more prototyping with the tool so that you don't because i use something called proto.io it's a web-based prototyping tool it's really nice i like it because you can share the prototype with someone whether it's live or as a snapshot Uh, the only problem with it is you're throwing away all that time so the three or four days you might spend prototyping to get this sort of demo app together that people can play around with you've then got to just start from scratch with alloy and recode everything anyway what would be cool is to do that sort of thing with alloy is to sort of you know drop some drop some tags in of demo interfaces and things that all and then wire those together with a really simple way of wiring them together so you can actually just build an app and click through it and it looks like it's working it looks like there's data in there and then once this client says yep that's the that's user experience that's the flow that i want to do you can just take that and start coding in real stuff that that would be my ultimate whether it's a wish list thing because i think it's something that's achievable by me or us as developers i think it's possible to write something like that so it's going to be something i'm going to be looking into yeah that that sounds awesome that, especially crux like I, I find myself doing bringing over lots of style sheets and java code to do some yeah. of what you're talking about and it's it feels so mundane i have these helper classes and i'm constantly copying and bringing it over and yeah having crux and being able to overwrite that that's awesome. I, I, uh, I definitely be the first one to sign up on that. And I might, might use that more than I do recipe, which is saying quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still playing with it. I'm still trying to tweak it. It's, it's got, it's had some issues. So things like when you start doing custom tags and overriding stuff, you know, what I'm effectively doing is taking a text field and I'm creating a view. Um, and that view has a border so you can have a border around it. And then inside that view is the caption and the error message and the real text field. So, you know what the what alloy is giving you what giving uh, what my custom module is giving alloy back is that custom view with all that stuff inside and alloy thinks it's a text field so you have to start putting properties and methods in there to make it work like a text field otherwise you as i mean i've i've literally fallen for this trap where one of the side effects of that library at the moment was that the dot value doesn't respond with anything you have to use get value and set value because i'm not updating dot value in real time because i can't well, I can, mm-hmm. but I'm just not at the moment. So a normal text field, you know, you can just say, give me the dot value and it gives you the real-time value. In my override, it doesn't work like that at the moment. I'm working on a fix for it. So I fell into that same trap. I, I actually implemented my own module in my project. I was saying <laughs> dot value. Why the hell's dot value empty? I'm just freaking out of this thing. And then I suddenly realized I need to do get value because that doesn't work. And that's the only problem. You, If it's for you, even though I made the mistake myself, it's easier because you know how it works but when you release that to someone else and then they're freaking out and logging issues because none of your text fields return anything because their existing code is asking for dot value that's a problem so i, I need to do a, a, a few workarounds for that and there's also the cleanup element you've got to make sure that you're cleaning up afterwards because you can end up with memory leaks which can which can, you don't want your library causing that sort of stuff but i i yeah i want to work more on stuff like that and and put together modules and almost put together like some lego brick type uh concepts so that you can say right i want to build an app what's my app going to be it's going to be let's say it's an app to locate plumbers or tradesmen to do something well i'm going to need a gps element so i just want to plug in my gps library and i'm going to need uh, a mapping element so i'm going to plug in my map library that links in with the gps library and i need push notifications so i'm going to drop in that that module and i need to display list data so i'm going to drop in that module that shows my list view and does pickers and things or my ue elements so that i can almost just like bolt together all the all the bits 
And then I just need to focus on the cool stuff that's specific to that app and not have to repeat doing UE layouts that I've done 50 times before. And TSS files, like you say, having to do your TSS resets and what's the classic one on a table view where you have to make sure your table view heights are correct on Android and iOS or that you've done your default color correctly on Android so things don't come up gray and background colors and all, all stuff like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that, like you said, I mean, uh, all, the, all that stuff sounds great because I, I spend a lot of time on UI, UX and uh, crux and pickers and all of that stuff. Being able to standardize and, and make it more of a plug and play would, would be really awesome for sure. Yeah, Hans did a, um, Hans released something, I think it was last week or the week before, he open sourced something to do with the new project and app he's, business he's working on. I don't know if you saw it, it was the expanding, like an expanding form field. So it's quite cool. So as you, as you type stuff in and add stuff, it sort of expands new elements underneath for you to fill in which was really nice. Uh, and he's got like a little demo of it and everything. And he's released the code for that, which is quite cool. So that can be used. And I like, yeah, I, w- I want to do, I want to I build some more stuff like that and use some more stuff like that. Because I think, you know, one of the challenges with Titanium is an issue. It's a multiple issue thing. It's like you've got JavaScript, which we all know you can do a million different ways. You've got Titanium, which people can do different ways. You know, people use Classic, people use Alloy, people soon you're going to be able to use Vue and Angular. Even if you use Alloy and Classic, you can mix it. You could use Alloy like I used to and do manual data binding. You can do models and collections. There's all kinds of different ways of doing stuff. Then you mix in things like ES6 and and other different ways of of working. Um, So you add all that stuff together. Then you mix in the fact that you're dealing with cross-platform. You're dealing with mobile. You're dealing with what's the best practice to do stuff in iOS and Android to make sure it works. There's just so many ways to skin that cat, basically. And it will be cool to start coming up with things where it's a bit like, not kitchen sink, but a bit like a bootstrap app. So a bit like, here's a bootstrap app that you can just download the template for. It's got a load of libraries in it for push and for GPS and for, that aren't done in a sort of kitchen sink type demo way that might be tricky for you to pull apart for your own app, but you could literally just, you know, bolt these things together and you've got an app that has a sort of consistent structure. It's using all the right standards. It's using Alloy in the, in the right way. And it now lets you go off and build the actual app that you want to build. That that would be that would be my goal. I think that bit what I'd really like to do. Yeah, that that sounds awesome. Cool. Have you got anything else you want to talk about? No. You know. Uh, anything exciting coming up with new releases that you've heard about? Um, I think seven point five is going to be out very shortly. I think in terms of release candidate. You know, like the action bar uh, and the uh, tab. Sorry, the tab group at the bottom sounds really great because I, I, I think. It, Android's shown over the last few years they've they've started to realize that iPhone had it right from the beginning and it's easier to have the tab group at the bottom where your thumb is and not have to reach up high. Um, so I, I've definitely been interested in. I didn't want to hack it together or use modules, so I've kind of been holding off and delaying. So I can I can tell you if that comes out in the native SDK, I'll flip to it instantly. I've been looking forward to that. Yeah, that's that's I'm I'm very interested in that. That'll be something that I think I'd, I've never liked the top tab groups in Android. I'd never liked the way that. I don't know how this is going to work in terms of the user experience, but I've never liked the way that it opened a new window. I just don't like the way that things lay out, the way that icons appear and the and the, the way that the text is displayed. It's just a much... And when you see Android apps where the tabs are at the bottom, they just look much nicer. I don't mind the slide menu. You know, people use slide menus and tabs um, for some apps where they start getting... I think uh, Outlook's a good example of that, actually. Uh, on iOS, actually has the tab groups and a slide menu that comes in. And it seems to work, you know, sometimes it's overkill, but that works quite well. But the tag groups at the top always always annoyed me a lot. <laughs> and I, I think the only other thing I'm, I'm looking forward to, and, and I've, 
I've been doing ES5 this whole time. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having the full ES6 support. I mean, I don't know ES6 yet. I want to start learning about the arrow functions and some of the differences there. But uh, when it's fully supported, I definitely want to jump in, head over heels, and, and convert all my apps to ES6 when it's fully supported. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still in the ES5 boat at the moment only because if I update modules to ES6, then obviously they won't work with ES5. And I've got people out there that are using stuff that I've written in ES5 and I don't want to have to maintain two. So it's that you're just sort of stuck in that limbo state at the moment. But I guess as things move forward, hopefully people will use more and more ES6 and then it can, we can get to a point where I can I can get get jumping into that because there's some cool stuff in there. It's always funny now when you're sort of looking through stuff with Node or whatever else you're doing. And you see some of the samples online now are, are ES6 and you sort of have to double take a couple of times and think, hold on, <laughs> I, I sort of get what that's doing. But how do I translate that back to what I'm doing? Because I'm still using ES5. Um, and I think, uh, haven't they, aren't they working on ES7 and 8 or something at the moment? So oh. it all gets, yeah, it's all moving quite fast. JavaScript's become popular again. <laughs> and uh, what is it? Apple are releasing, uh, Apple have done optimizations with chips and things that can run JavaScript better. So some of these devices that are coming out are going to be running JavaScript faster than other devices. Well, and, and it's interesting. So I'm, I'm working on a project internally. Uh, we're looking to, to use the Microsoft Outlook add-ins, um, which if you've not looked into those, it allows you to hook into the native Outlook app and to be able to extend Outlook oh, wow. to, you, to your own function. And it all uses JavaScript. Um, so Microsoft has kind of showed their hand that everything is JavaScript. So they have this uh, helper library called OfficeJS Helper, and what it builds in is it builds in some of the native API elements to drop in a text field and a button. Um, you can do navigational controllers. So what we're using it for, right, where, where does every business user spend more than half their days in email? So if you're in an email and you're looking at customer John Doe from ABC Insurance, we can now have a button that you click on it on ABC Insurance and it pulls in inside Outlook, doesn't leave the app. Uh, it's basically a, a web wrapper. It brings it, it kind of scrolls it in like it's a, a child. Uh, window and here's ABC Insurance and look you've done this much money with them and their bills are past due and you know whatever information you might want to pull from your own system you're able to use JavaScript with HTML and tie it into an Outlook add-in that's just added right into your native app and then I've even taken it to where if you want more information I where I can then deep link into my native app to open up that client and give you more information so we we are kind of using Outlook as Okay, anything that you can do in 30 seconds or less, we want to do in this Outlook ad. And if you're going to spend more than 30 seconds on it, well, then you probably should go in our native app and dig deeper into it. And so that's kind of been our UI UX is if it takes you more than a minute, that's too much content to try to look inside Outlook. But those quick snapshots, what's the revenue? You know, That's nice. Yeah, and so it's all – if you get into it, it's, it's a, it's a, all it is is an HTML, it's style sheets, and it's JavaScript. You put it on a website somewhere, you package it up in this manifest XML file. It's literally XML file. And through your company um, you know, policies, you can push this out, Outlook add-in, and it's just added and extended. You can get to it from Android and from iPhone, and it's, it's awesome. It extends Outlook with JavaScript. And it's like, wow, I, I'm already doing all of this in, in Titanium. Let me just extend it into Outlook. So That's cool. nice. And that's uh, OfficeJS helpers. That's correct, yeah. And so they've, got, they've built their own, you know, because obviously with Android – you need to open a new heavy window, whereas iPhone, you want to open like a, a navigational parent or uh, child window inside the parent. And so it handles that differently using their helper library. Well, that's really nice. I have to check that out because I, I use Outlook for, I don't use Outlook. Canary is my main email that I use, but I do use Outlook for AppC stuff. So yeah, that'll be interesting. I'll check that out. Yeah, it's, it's becoming a game changer for our company. That's, that's huge. Everybody's in email. So you're now, instead of downloading an app and opening the app, they're already in email. So you can now get that content rolled up 
uh, in line with uh, your your email. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and, and I like the I like the approach of saying you know if it's something that's you know twenty thirty seconds or less, you could do it. You should do it in the email app because that's where you are. But if it's something that needs more attention than that, go off to the full app. You know that's that's what you want because you don't want to be suddenly forced to do something in the email app that's you need more power or be thrown out if you just want to look at something really quickly. Um, so that's yeah, I like that. I like that approach. It's pretty cool. Well, it's been good talking to you, Adam. Absolutely, same here. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll talk again, and I'll be doing some more Titanium talks with other Titans and other people we'll be interviewing and Titanium developers. So if you're interested in having a chat, talking about what you're doing, how you use Titanium, what you're building, then get in touch and we can see what we can do. Uh, but otherwise, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.